Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. What makes a great spy? In the movies, it's someone sexy or suave who can blend in with a crowd or win a pile of money at Baccarat. It's the person who has no family waiting at home and can dash off to Europe or the Middle East as soon as their country calls them to duty. In reality, spies aren't like the movies at all, and throughout history they have come from the unlikeliest of places. In his autobiography, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, game show host and creator Chuck Barris claimed to have been an assassin for the CIA during the 1960s and 70s. Mo Berg was another unexpected spy. The third child of Bernard and Rose Berg, Mo grew up in Harlem in New York City around 1902. When he was almost four, he started playing catch with a neighborhood policeman who would patrol his block. Of course, he didn't want to spend all his time playing with grown-ups, so Berg asked his mother if he could go to school with other children. Instead, his family moved out of Harlem just across the river to Newark, New Jersey. His father had bought a pharmacy there, starting a new chapter of their lives. Berg did eventually attend school, and he was a modest student, but his passion was split between his studies and the siren's call of baseball. From his time on his high school's 1918 dream team to his championship-winning years at Princeton, Berg became an all-star player. However, they weren't playing baseball in the war, and Berg was more than just a talented athlete. He also studied seven languages, including Greek, Sanskrit, and German. His mind made him a valuable asset to American intelligence agencies. He was tasked with gathering photos of enemy territories for the U.S., after which he was stationed in South America to keep an eye on how American troops were faring there. With no clear threat coming from that part of the world, Berg was moved once again this time to the Office of Strategic Services, which would eventually evolve into the United States Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. Berg helped plan paramilitary operations in Yugoslavia, as well as the abduction of Italian rocket scientists on a mission known as Project Larsen. In fact, he spent much of his middle years traveling the world, jumping out of planes and persuading nuclear physicists to defect from their countries and build bombs for the United States. Though, despite his brilliant mind and charming personality, this spy didn't get his start in government work during World War I. He volunteered after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, the start of America's involvement in World War II. So what did the man in his 40s who studied seven languages do before the war? Why, play baseball, of course. Recent college graduate Mo Berg signed up with the Brooklyn Robins in June of 1923, almost 10 years before they would change their name to the Brooklyn Dodgers. He played one season with the Robins, then moved to Paris, where he attended over 30 classes at the Sorbonne. Along the way, he developed a strict routine of reading 10 newspapers a day, from first page to last. Though he loved baseball, it was not his main focus. He spent much of his time touring Europe while his teammates began training for the next season. And the Robins manager, Wilbert Robinson, took notice. Berg wasn't much of a hitter anyway, so he was moved to the Minneapolis Millers, then to the Toledo Mud Hens, until finally the Chicago White Sox took him on as a catcher in 1926, 
and Berg refused to give up the kind of life he'd grown accustomed to. He told his new owners that he wouldn't start with the team until May as he had to finish his first year of Columbia Law School. Ever the overachiever, it seems. They offered him a bigger paycheck the following year if he would abandon law school and attend spring training with the rest of the team. Berg refused, punished for his decision by spending much of the next season on the bench. It wasn't until an August game against the Yankees when he finally got his chance to shine. As catcher, he went up against the heaviest hitters of the time, including Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. His performance from that point on helped him earn a spot as the White Sox starting catcher. Unsurprisingly, as his sports career continued to trend upward, his legal education suffered. He did not graduate with his class in 1929, but he did pass the bar exam in New York and earned his law degree the following year. Berg continued to play ball until the late 1930s, ending his career with the Boston Red Sox. He went on radio game shows where he demonstrated his intelligence and he helped his country win World War II. Sadly, Berg didn't do much after the war. He lived with his siblings and was asked to write a memoir about his time as both an athlete and a spy. He declined. Moberg died in a hospital bed in New Jersey in 1972. The nurse who had been attending him recalled his last words as being, How did the Mets do today? For those wondering, they won. Just in case you were curious. As we move up in the world, it's important to remember where we came from. Our roots the people who raised us and shaped our lives. For many, those people might be our parents. For others, they could be aunts, uncles, grandparents, or neighbors. For Archie Leach, all he had to do was look down, from the top of his stilts. Archie was born in Bristol, England in 1904. His father, Elias, worked at a clothing factory, and his mother, Elsie, made ends meet as a seamstress. He also had an older brother who had died of tuberculosis before he was born. Archie had a rough childhood growing up and avoided his father, who tended to drink to excess. His domineering mother, on the other hand, pushed him toward the arts. She sometimes took him to the movies, where he'd stare up at the slapstick antics of Charlie Chaplin or the death-defying feats of Buster Keaton. He cherished those moments, a break from his otherwise melancholy life. When he wasn't in school or at the cinema, Elsie made him take piano lessons. She had been suffering from clinical depression since the death of her first son, a condition she'd never gotten treatment for, and so it festered inside her, slowly destroying her relationship with Archie. Though deep down she loved her son, she had trouble showing it. Later in life, Archie believed her behavior stemmed from a fear of losing him as she had with her firstborn. Mr. Leach admitted Elsie to a mental facility when Archie was just nine years old. He told his son that his mother was away on what he called a long holiday— one she would never come back from. Archie's already strained relationship with his mother was destroyed by her sudden vacation, and when it was reported that she had died, he was unable to get the closure he desperately needed. It wasn't until his father was on his deathbed years later when he finally learned the truth. Elsie was still alive. As Archie got older, he returned to the one place he felt safe, the arts, specifically the theater. By 1917, he was working in theaters all over Bristol as a production assistant. Though he'd been a smart student, he'd gotten expelled from school for getting caught in the girls' bathroom. Not to worry, though. Archie had a plan. 
He'd become friendly with the troupe of acrobatic dancers known as the Penders, thanks to his time working in theater. He had no intention of continuing his education. Instead, he wanted to be a performer, and Bob Pender was only too happy to oblige. So Archie's father, Elias, worked out a deal with Mr. Pender, who would take Archie under his wing and train him as a stilt walker. He'd teach him how to dance, provide room and board while on tour, and pay him for his performances. By 1920, Archie and the Penders had made the jump from small English playhouses to the New York Hippodrome. The venue could hold almost 6,000 people, who filled the seats 12 times a week for nearly a year to watch Archie and the Penders leap and dance across the stage. That was the young Leech's introduction to the world of vaudeville. For the next several years, he toured with different groups in places like St. Louis and Cleveland. It wasn't long before he was starting in major Broadway productions and getting noticed, too. The next logical step for the up-and-coming actor was a jump from the stage to the screen. In 1931, he did a screen test for Paramount, which led to a studio contract paying $450 a week. There was just one problem. His name. Archibald Leach wasn't going to draw people to the movies. Paramount manager B.P. Schulberg told him to change it to something more all-American. And so Archie, borrowing a page from Gary Cooper, came up with the perfect name, one that would grace the pages of magazines and newspapers for years to come. The star of Bringing Up Baby and His Girl Friday would no longer go by Archie Leach from Bristol. He would be forever immortalized as Cary Grant. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.